Thank you for listening to the Collective Church Podcast. Collective is a church for the rest of us. That means if you've never been to church, if you walked away from church, or have struggled to find a church home, we were started for you. For more information about Collective and how to join us on a Sunday morning, please head to www.mycollective.church. So when I was in high school, we used to play a game called Bigger or Better. Has anybody maybe you played this game before? There's a few. Okay. It's like a classic like church youth group game. So what you do is you split into two teams, and each team starts with the same item. And so we'd usually pick something, ser- like something simple like a box of unopened cereal, and then we'd walk around the neighborhoods in northern Virginia. You'd knock on doors, and you'd ask people, do you have something bigger or better than this that you'd be willing to trade? And sure enough, someone would see this box of cereal and think, I have kids that need breakfast tomorrow. I haven't been to the grocery store. Sure, I'll trade you. And so they'd trade something like a DVD. And then you take that DVD and you walk to the next house and say, okay, I've got a DVD. Do you have something that's bigger or better than this? And eventually at the end, you meet up and these two teams compete and whichever has the best item that you walk away with, you win. And I remember one time when I was playing uh, in a neighborhood in Northern Virginia called South Riding, which is essentially Pleasantville, right? Every house looks the same, white picket fences the whole way through. And, and we both, there are two teams and we both started with a Nerf football. So my team, we went out and, the, and we traded the Nerf football and we got a Razor scooter. A kid broke, her, broke his arm. And so the parents like, we don't want this anymore, we'll trade you. So we grabbed the Razor, razor scooter, eventually we traded it for a wagon. Then eventually we had the wagon and someone actually gave us a television. They're like, we don't want this anymore, you can have the TV and the wagon. So we had a TV and a wagon. After a few more trades, we actually ended up walking away with a portable basketball hoop. And so I remember thinking as we walked this basketball hoop, right, like we're carrying it down the street, and I remember thinking that we won. Right? I'd played this game many times, I'd collected many random items, and no one had ever walked away with a basketball hoop, so there was no way we would lose this game. And so we went to the meetup spot, and we were waiting for the other team, and that's when my friend Caleb drove up in a car. <laughs> someone, yeah, someone gave him a car. It was an early 1990 Honda Civic, so it was a little bit of a beater, but it was a car. And of course, I was mad. Like, I'm super competitive, and I was like, we have a basketball hoop, and you have a car. And so I assumed that they cheated, and so I'm like, tell me, tell me everything you traded to get this car. And so what happened was they traded their Nerf football for a kiddie pool, and eventually they traded that for a bicycle. And at some point along the way, someone gave them an antique chest that was in, this, in rough shape. And so they carried this thing around, so they met a guy who restores furniture, and he saw that and thought, that's what I want. And so he said, I'll trade you this probably $1,000 car for that antique chest, and so that's what they did. And so they walked away with this, this brand new to them car. Now, some of you right now are Googling South Riding, so you can go play bigger or better to see if you can walk away with a car. You probably could. But don't you often feel like life is one big game of bigger or better? We want a bigger house. We want a better car. We want a bigger paycheck. We want a better dating life. We want a bigger impact. We want a better body. We want a bigger job. We want better kids. We're not content. We want our life to be this game that we can just continually trade up. But because of that, because we kind of function in that way, because that's kind of what society says, that's what life is, we're not content. And that lack of contentment that you feel and the lack of contentment that we feel comes from comparison. The fastest way to kill something special is to compare it to something else. It's like when you love your home and you're thankful for your home, your home is really special, you worked really hard, and you're proud of your home. Until one of your friends or siblings buys a house that looks like it came straight out of Fixer Upper. Suddenly, you no longer think the house that you work so hard for is special. So you want something bigger. You want something better. You want something with more shiplap. The fastest way to kill something special is to compare it to something else. 
Today we're continuing our David the Giant Slayer series where we're looking at the life of David. And so far in this series, we've talked about overcoming labels and overcoming fear. And today we're talking about overcoming comparison. And the story that we're going to read, we're actually going to see two different versions and two different ways that we can respond to comparison. One is Saul's response and one is David's response. But before we get there, let's flash back. So previously at Collective, every time I say that, I want to think of Lost. Like I'm a huge Lost fan, so I always want to be like previously on Lost. But previously at Collective, so Israel was led by God, but wanted a king. So they chose Saul. And remember, they chose Saul because he was taller than everybody else. He had no qualifications. He wasn't a good person. He didn't really even love God. He was just big. And they thought he can lead us into battle and he can win. So therefore, he needs to be our king. But we learned that Saul was a bad king because he stopped following God. He stopped honoring God. And eventually, God left him. 1 Samuel 15 says this, And the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I've made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. And so because of that, God actually gives a person's name to Samuel and says, Go anoint this king. It's going to end up being David. So this is where David steps in. David is a runt shepherd. He's the youngest of eight boys. His brothers despise him. His own dad doesn't even think he's king worthy. He doesn't even invite him to the party where he has the opportunity to be anointed. But God chooses David to be the future king of Israel. And as David waits for his opportunity to become king, the Israelites are in a stalemate with the Philistine army, afraid to fight Goliath. And so David, this kid, volunteers, and he steps up. He picks five stones and sends one hurling through the air. It hits Goliath square in the head, knocking him to the ground. And the Israelites conquer the Philistines through David. And so that's where we're going to pick up the story today. This happens right after, this, after David kills Goliath. This is what it says. 1 Samuel 17. As Saul watched David going out to meet the Philistine, he said to Abner, commander of the army, Abner, whose son is that young man? Abner replied, as surely as you live, your majesty, I don't know. The king said, find out whose son this man is. As soon as David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul, with David still holding the, head, uh, holding the Philistine's head. Whose son are you, young man? Saul asked. And David said, I'm the son of your servant, Jesse of Bethlehem. So up to this point in the story, even though we're kind of reading this together, and even though we're, getting, we're being able to see both sides of it, right? We get to see a little bit of Saul and a little bit of David. Saul doesn't really know who David is, right? He kind of knows who he is. We learned a little bit before that David was a musician that played for Saul, so maybe he looks familiar. But he doesn't even know who David's family is. He doesn't even know what family he comes from until he kills Goliath. And now David's worth noticing Now, David's worth getting to know. The story continues. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. So remember, he was a shepherd. So he came, fought Goliath, and was like, all right, I'm just going to go back to doing what I do, which is tending my sheep. But Saul wouldn't let him. And this has to be a weird moment for David. Saul wants to keep him close by because he's a courageous warrior. He just defeated Goliath. Why would you send him home? And David, you know, like learning his story, he has to be kind of okay with this. He's got brothers who don't like him. His own father doesn't believe in him. But at the same time, David knows that one day he's going to be king. So the impending king, David, now lives in the current king's castle, which is just kind of a bizarre situation. But it sets up the rest of this relationship that we'll read today. The story continues. Whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. 
And so after David kills Goliath, Goliath the, the Israelites start fighting the Philistines. And Saul sends David out to fight more Philistines, right? They're running away. They're supposed to become slaves. They chose not to do that. Philistines decided to run. And so instead of sending David home, he's like, go fight. Go, go lead these men. Go take care of this trouble. And David finds success. David's on a roll. He's practically unstoppable. And he's a great leader. The troops and Saul's officers, the people that work side by side with Saul, love David. He gets a high rank, and this all essentially comes in a short period of time. It's like he's an overnight sensation. It wasn't a long and arduous process for David. It wasn't years of fighting people. It wasn't years of commanding an army. It wasn't years of defeating giants. It was one scenario where he defeats a giant and then gets sent out to be a part of the army. But because he killed Goliath, he got instant success and instant respect and instant honor. The story continues. When the men were returning home, so eventually after they fought the Philistines, they defeated that, that army, they started to come back home. So when the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet the king Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and timbrels and lyres. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. So imagine this scene before they ever officially get home right? Before, before they've even gotten back to be able to tell people that David killed Goliath, word has already gotten back to them. There's no social media, there's no phones, there's no USPS. It's simply word of mouth. At some point, people heard of this story and it became folklore because we know there's no way that at that point David had killed tens of thousands of people. He'd been in one battle. And in fact, we only really know that he killed one, Goliath. He came in in an army, but there's no way that David was responsible for doing this. And for Saul, we doubt that he actually killed thousands of people as well. Maybe he had the hand in that when he sent an army to go kill people, but Saul didn't kill thousands of people either. And so this whole situation, this whole song that they're singing is not true. It's a fairy tale. It's a folklore, right? There's this one story that they've stretched to be this new thing where Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And any logical person would have seen that. Anybody would have known that that wasn't true. Anybody would have known that that was the response to the fact that David killed Goliath, right? They're proud and they're joyful. They're not slaves, so of course they're going to create a song about him. But anybody who knew that situation, who, who knew what was going on, would recognize that that's just not true. It's fun, but it's not true. But that's not how Saul saw it. And you know that when Saul first heard that song, it sounded like a nursery rhyme, right? Like it's kind of like, Saul has slain his thousands, David has tens of thousands. There you go. That's the only time you'll ever hear me sing anything in church. <laughs> But you know, it's like kind of sing-songy, right? When you first hear it, like, oh, this is kind of fun. This is folklore. This is good. But as he continued to hear that song, you know, you know what, what happens. Because it happens in your life. It starts to feel more like nagging. The song starts to sound angry. The voice inside your head is telling him that he's not good enough. And this happens in our own life. The more we compare, the more we let it seep into our thoughts. It stops sounding like a cute little nursery rhyme. It stops looking like a cute Instagram video, and it starts to feel more like accusations. It sounds more like people telling you that you're not good enough, that they're better than you. And this song was supposed to be a fun song about the Israelites' victory, but to Saul it was much more, and it hurt. And this is how he responds. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? Foreshadowing, right? Like he has no idea. He asked that question, and David's just sitting there waiting for his opportunity to be king. And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. 
David essentially saved Saul's kingdom. He saved his reign as king. He, he, he fought Goliath. He made sure that the Israelites weren't going to become slaves. But it doesn't matter to Saul because David was getting credit for being mightier than he was. And instead of stepping back and taking a deep breath and realizing that it was all folklore, that Saul was still king, that David was still under his power, he gets jealous. He starts to compare himself to David. And their relationship, if you continue to read through 1 Samuel, you'll realize was never the same. Another issue with comparison is that where comparison begins, contentment ends. It's never been easier to compare in the history of the world, right? Social media. You can be having a really good day, and you pull up Facebook, or you pull up Instagram, and you see that everyone else is having fun. You start to think, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, why am I not invited? Why am I not there? Why don't I get to do that? You know, you see your friend who's on their second vacation of the year, and you're lucky to get out of Maryland this summer, they're out there sitting by the pool and they're reading a book and you know they're sitting by a pool and reading the book because they took a picture of it and they posted it online for you to see it. And you start to think, I hate that they get to go on this vacation. I hate that she's at the pool. I hate that she knows how to read. <laughs> and some of you might have felt this way this week because of Valentine's Day, right? Your friend is out eating, they're at the perfect dinner, there's a ring, they're eating lobster, they're drinking champagne and you're at home by yourself eating takeout. You're at home and your kids are screaming. Or your husband was late at work, and you start to think, I hate that she isn't alone like me. I hate that I'm with screaming kids while they're out to eat. I hate that he has to work long hours to pay for the house that isn't as nice as the one that they own. The problem with comparison is that we often compare our behind the scenes to everyone else's highlight reel. And we know our everyday life. We see the dishes piling up. We see the arguments that we're getting into with our spouse. We see the bills adding up. Then we go online for an escape, right? It's a, it's a break from real life. And all we do is see highlights of those around us, and we start to compare. And where comparison begins, contentment ends. Saul compares his life to David's highlight reel. David has one highlight. He killed Goliath. But that's all Saul does is start comparing and begins to drive him mad. Do you know what Paul says about comparison? Paul, who wrote the majority of the New Testament, Paul, who was kind of the cream of the crop in many social and religious circles, this is what he wrote to the church in Corinth in regard to comparison in 2 Corinthians. He said, oh, don't worry. We wouldn't dare to say that we are as wonderful as these other men who tell you how important they are, but they are only comparing themselves with each other, using themselves as a standard of measurement. How ignorant. How ignorant is it to find ourselves comparing? How ignorant is it to say, look at the way their kids act all the time? How ignorant is, is it to look at, that, look at them and say, look how much money they make, or the, their relationship and what they have and what I don't have? And when you do this, comparing either makes you feel superior or inferior, but neither honors God. It might make you feel better than or less than someone else, but neither honors God. I've never been more aware of how I compare myself to others than when we had Elise, when we had our daughter. Uh, when Ray and I found out that we were pregnant, we also learned that we were a few of our friends in the church I was working in down in Annapolis that were pregnant as well. And so this was exciting for us, right? Like we knew there are other people, we could do this together, this was great. And, and so through the pregnancies, we spent a lot of time together, and we began trying to figure out how do we navigate this together. But then the babies were born, and the sleepless nights started. And the acid reflux started, and the milk protein allergy started. 
Ray was working full-time job. I was working full-time job at a church. I was getting my master's. We hadn't slept in what felt like it was years, and it was tough. A few months after Elise was born, we got together with one of those friends who'd been pregnant at the same time. They had a baby that was probably five or six weeks older than Elise. And while we're sitting down talking, eating dinner, we're both like half falling asleep as we try to eat. We asked them if they were struggling with their daughter's sleep schedule. And they both kind of chuckled, and they said, well, actually, things have been pretty smooth so far. Then they went on to tell us that at three months old, their daughter started sleeping through the night. And at four months old, she started putting herself to sleep. I've never wanted to hurt someone more than in that moment. <laughs> I could see my wife shooting daggers at this family. I, I honestly could have cried. Like, I could have just, like, melted down in that moment. But I kept thinking as they kept talking about how awesome their kid's sleep schedule was, I kept thinking, why can't our baby be like that? Why can't Elise be a better sleeper? Why can't she put herself to bed at night? And I began to think, what would I give up for that to happen? Like, well, how much money would I pay for that to happen? What, would I get rid of a car? Like, we had a dog, get rid of the dog. I don't know, like, whatever it is. What would I give up to make that happen? But that's ignorant. It's ignorant. I'm ignorant. And the problem with comparison is that when comparison begins, contentment ends. But when contentment ends, you ignore the gifts that God has given you. The reason why my response was ignorant is because while I compare my three-month-old daughter to my friend's kid who sleeps through the night without issues, I have people in my own life who have empty cribs and empty wombs, and they would give anything they could for a child that didn't sleep through the night. Because it would mean they had a child to love. But that's what comparison does. Instead of being content, instead of having joy, instead of being thankful, we destroy something special. We become discontent. We lose sight of the gifts that God has given us, and we dishonor God. And that's what comparison does. You see the house that your friend just bought, and you begin to compare it to your own home. And while you do that, there are people in your life that are working two jobs just to afford the rent that they have in the small apartment. You see the relationship that your brother has, and you long to find a spouse like his. And while you do that, there are people looking at you wishing they had a family to compare themselves to. When we compare, we become discontent. And we lose sight of the gifts that God has given us. So how do we overcome comparison? We live in this culture where intentionally or unintentionally, we are told to compare, right? Like we know that. Social media was created so we can compare our life to somebody else's so that we could do something different, buy more things, and be different. And so how do we overcome comparison? So we know that the fastest way to kill something special is to compare it to something else. We know that where comparison begins, contentment ends. And when contentment ends, we lose sight of what God has given us. So what do we do? Like I said earlier, there's two ways to respond, and you can respond like Saul, or you can respond like David. Here's what Saul does, 1 Samuel 18, starting in verse 12. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David but had departed from Saul. So he sent David away from him and gave him a command over a thousand men, and David led the troops in their campaigns. When Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. And so this is the second time in 1 Samuel 18 alone that we see that Saul was afraid. And so his fear is growing every single day. And so what does he try to do? He puts David in charge of more people. And that might seem like, uh, for us, like, oh, he's giving him honor, right? He's putting him in a place to win. But the reality is David's, or Saul's putting him in a place where maybe David will die. He's putting him in a place to have harder battles, to have more people, in hopes that he might fail. He puts David in charge of the army. But there's no doubt what he wants on the other end of that is David to fall and die in battle. The comparison that Saul creates breeds fear, and it makes him want to hurt David. It will make you want to hurt those around you. 
And then it only gets worse because Saul's daughter actually falls in love with David. When Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter Michael loved David, Saul, be Saul became still more afraid of him and he remained his enemy the rest of his days. Comparison drove Saul to make David an enemy. All the while, the only thing that David is doing is listening to Saul's orders. He's got God on his side, but he's fighting the battles for Saul. He's leading the army for Saul. And the entire time that this is happening, all Saul's doing is having that fear grow and grow and grow to the point where David is an enemy for the rest of his days. And up to this point in the story, David has no idea. David has no idea that this friction exists, that this tension exists. And if you continue to read through 1 Samuel, you'll actually read that Saul spends years trying to punish, hurt, destroy, and kill David. And this all started from a song that completely took David's triumphs out of context. It started from a song that raised David to folklore status that they knew wasn't real. And here's the craziest thing about Saul's response. David did nothing but help Saul. Every victory David had was a victory for Saul. David made Saul more powerful. He made him more successful. He made more people trust him. David made Saul a better king, at least on the surface. But the reason why Saul responded the way that he did is because his value was found in himself and not in God. Up to that point in the story, we read multiple times that God had left Saul. And this was because Saul stopped trusting God. And Saul stopped listening to God. Saul believed that he was the Lord of his own life, that he was the leader in his own life. And because of that, his value was no longer found in God. His value was found in how many people he killed. It was found in his status as king. It was found in his power, his money, his possessions. And when we start to compare, we put value in our own selves instead of God. But what does David keep doing? While comparison drives Saul mad, David continued to find his value in his relationship with God. In everything he did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. David kept having faith in God and his people, and that led to success. It led to all of Israel and Judah loving this guy because ultimately he put God first and let God lead. The Philistine commanders continued to go out in battle, and as often as they did, David met with more success than the rest of Saul's officers, and his name became well known. David carried on. He continued to follow Saul's orders, but he continued to have faith in God. He never compared himself to Saul. He didn't compare himself to his brothers or his father because he knew where his value came from, that it came from God, not his triumphs, not from the people who loved him, not from his fame or his fortune, but from the promise that God gave him that he was with David. And this is why David writes one of the most popular psalms of all time in Psalm 23, and this is what David says. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right path for his name's sake. Even though, I, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I'll fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the rest of my days. And I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Through everything that David did, through every victory, through every triumph, through every battle that he had, David trusted God. 
And David knows that God is his shepherd. A shepherd protects. A shepherd leads. A a shepherd keeps you safe. And God is with him. And so David lives his life knowing that his value comes from God, so he doesn't need to compare himself to anyone else. When it comes to us, we can never fully follow Jesus if we constantly compare ourselves to somebody else. We can never be who God calls us to be if we're always looking over our shoulder thinking, what about them? What do they have? Where are they going? What are they doing? Why are they getting so much attention? And we can never fully follow Jesus if we're always comparing ourselves to someone else. And why do we do this? this is, it's part of our nature, right? Like we feel it every single day. We compare and we compare and we compare. And the reason why we do this is because our sin, those times that we walk out of alignment with God, when we don't trust God, when we don't let him lead, that sin takes us away from the heart of God into ourselves. That was Saul's life. His whole life was walking away from God and putting more value in himself. In our own lives, we try to find an external win to satisfy an internal longing. And there's no external accomplishment. There's nothing. There's no blessing, no relationship, no amount of money, no, no satisfaction that will ever quench the internal longing that we have. There's nothing that will satisfy the internal longing that we have inside. You can't have enough money. You can't get enough likes. There's not enough attention, a good enough house, a perfect vacation. You can look and look and look. There's nothing on the outside designed by God that will satisfy you on the inside except a relationship with him. And this is why it's ignorant to compare. This is why it'll never work. It's useless. It's a waste of time. It's destructive and it's hurtful. It might make you feel superior Maybe sometimes it makes you feel inferior, but it dishonors God. It's because there's no external win that will ever satisfy the internal longing that we have. So what do we do? We have this longing. What do we do? Our tendency is to look outside. You start to think, am I worthy? Do I belong? Am I good enough? Do you think I'm cool? Do I live up to your expectations? Was I what you wanted me to be? And there's never an external answer that will satisfy, ever. And that is why we have to answer this very important question, and we have to get it right. And if we don't, we'll be miserable and dissatisfied for the rest of our lives. And the question is simple, but it's life-changing once you get it right. It's life-changing when this becomes the root of who you are. The question is this, who or what is going to define my worth? Who or what is going to define my worth? Some of you are living for a dad who's no longer alive. You're living for a mom who will never give you what you want. You're living for an ex-spouse thinking, I'm going to show them, and they don't even care. You're living for your friends. Or in the culture today, a lot of times, we're living for them. We don't even know who them is. We're just living for them. We want our life to look good to them. We have to live up to their expectations. So who or what is going to bring meaning and define your worth in this life? If you're a follower of Jesus, you know where I'm going with this. The answer is obvious, but it's powerful and it's important. If your answer is anything besides Jesus, you're running a race that you will never win. You'll you'll never win. You'll never be satisfied. You'll never be happy. You will always have that longing in your life because it's always bigger or better. You'll never win. And so you have to figure out who or what is going to define my worth. And if you do follow Jesus, the answer should be God. Your hope, your value, your worth should be found in him. Because God says you are worth everything. 
including sending his son to live a perfect life to die on a cross for our sins. And if you're not a follower of Jesus and you feel like you get caught up in this world of comparison, you feel more like Saul than David, you start to resent people and hate people and have these deep, bitter feelings deep down inside and you're not even sure why, I want you to know that this is not how it's supposed to be. That you're not, that's not where it's supposed to come from. That's not where your value comes from. That's not where you're not supposed to compare to feel good. You're not supposed to look on social media to feel good. You're not supposed to make yourself feel superior, superior or even inferior. Your value comes from God. And he says you are worth every single thing, including sending his own child to live a perfect life to die for you. And you can experience that freedom. You can experience that worth. You can experience that peace. And to be honest, the reason why we started this church is so that you can experience that. We'd want nothing more for you to know that your worth comes from God, and he says you are worth every single thing. We'd love for you to take that step. Something that we celebrate often here is baptism. It's this time when people say, I'm going to take that step. I'm going to fully put my faith in God. I'm going to make him the leader of my life, and I'm going to get immersed in water. It's the death to our old selves and rising our new self, and it's saying, hey, your value is no longer in what you have, your junk from your past, or even your broken present. It's saying your, your, your value and your love comes from God and for your future. And you can experience that. Life can feel like one big game of bigger or better. You compare your life, your job, your marriage, your faith, your followers, your friends, always wanting bigger and always wanting better. But that's ignorant. Because when we do that, we try to find value in our own selves and what we have and what we can do. But our values come from God if you let it. And so who or what do you want to define your worth? Let's pray. God, thank you that um, thank you that we don't have to find value in, in the house that we own or the car that we drive or the money that we have. God, that, that you tell us that we have value beyond anything we can have in this world. God, I pray as a group of people that are caught up in this world where social media dominates chunks of our time and hours of our day and we end up resenting our own family and our own friends because what they have and what we don't have or what we want. God, I pray as a church and as a group of people that we realize that, that all comparison does is breed discontent and it forces us to lose sight of you and how valuable you say we are and how much you love us and the fact that this world is so small compared to eternity with you and what you want to spend with us. So God, I just pray that we can move on from comparison. God, I, I know that's hard. But God, I, I pray that this week as we wake up and the first thing we do is look at our phone and the first thing we do is get on Facebook. God, that we don't start to, to hate and resent the people in our life because we realize our values come from you and that you love us and that you care for us. And it's not about what we have or what we can do. It's about you. God, we love you and pray this in your name. Amen.